everybody. This is Drew. Welcome to the Owl Once Was Lost podcast, the companion to the Owl Once Was Lost phone application for missing persons on iOS and Android devices. Uh, please go ahead and give us a review today if you've been listening to this series on John Benet and have been enjoying it. I know it's a little convoluted to say the least. Um, there's just so much going on here, but it was because there were so many people involved in this case from friends and family to, you know, people in the media and everybody kind of had their two cents to put in of what was going on because it was very strange. If you, you know, heard up until now with this ransom note and them, you know, the father, John Ramsey, just, you know, going downstairs and finding John Benet down on the floor, um, unfortunately deceased very, very sad, but, you know, we've been talking about their social life and how they've, you know, made a carved out a, uh, life for themselves there in the, in the upper echelons of society. So that's kind of where we left off. We we're talking about John Binet, um, was redecorating their vacation home on Lake Michigan. Um, don't forget also that we have started Patreon. We could really use the help, uh, to help maintain, the phone app, which could literally be the deference maker in your life. If you happen to have children or you have an elderly parent who happens to go missing, I'm, we're here in Florida and that happens all the time, all the time, which they call silver alerts, kind of like an amber alert. The difference is with those alerts, they're over 20 years old. The technology is old. Amber alerts have never actually physically found an abducted child before. I was very surprised when I heard that a ways back that they had actually never found an abducted child that had never worked properly. Now, something like this that works in real time, we can spread out within a 40 mile radius to all the people that have the phone app downloaded to their phone. They're going to get that information immediately. And we're also going to be on the line with the family or a representative to get even more fine tuned information on that missing loved one so that we can have a, a chance, an actual real chance at finding them in that first crucial hour, uh, which everybody should know by now if that that child, that person isn't found in that first hour. It just takes a nosedive as far as percentages and statistics on finding them alive, unfortunately. And that's what we want to do is find them alive and well in that first hour and get whoever was uh, involved, if there was an abduction, get them behind bars. So, all right, so let's get back to where we were, where we were at. We were talking about Patsy redecorating their vacation home on Lake Michigan. Um, so she said, the, the one time that I ever saw John really lose his temper, meaning John, John Ramsey, was about Patsy and money, said Marino. He would throw the credit cards on his desk and say, she's going to spend every last penny that I make. Jane Stoby, a former manager who had been working for Access Graphics in 1990, even before Ramsey took control of the company, characterizes Patsy's spending as Sherman shopping Atlanta. And that's in relation to Sherman burning down Atlanta during the Civil War. So she said she learned quickly that Patsy, who often planned social functions for the company, did everything on the grandest of scales. We saw the bill for this luncheon in Atlanta that Patsy had arranged and organized around the theme of Gone with the Wind, with actors even playing Scarlet and Rhett 
and it was over $30,000, maybe $33,000. She adds that the luncheon could have been given for between five dollars and $10,000. So huge, huge difference there. In 1993, Stobie was sent to Atlanta to run the office there and eventually to shut it down. Even though Nedra, Polly, and Pam Powell were on the payroll, according to numerous ex-employees, Ramsey always delegated firings to others, even when it came to family. My job was to manage Nedra, and really career-wise, I was hanging myself. Don Powell was there like maybe once a month. He did not want to be in Atlanta. That was very clear. Nedra was intensely competitive, continues Stobie. She shared a story about how when the girls were running for Miss West Virginia, some woman in the pageant had a ring that was so many carats big, so Nedra had to go out and buy one that was even bigger. While I was working there, I got engaged and wore my one-carat engagement ring down there. The next day, she had to come in with a four-carat ring, and she says to me, yours is the nice starter ring. Yeah, that's nice, right? A woman who worked for me in Georgia said, these are the meanest people that she's ever met. The Powell House, a brick colonial with a circular driveway, was a matter of great pride to Nedra. One investigator described their living room as the shrine room, bedecked with trophies, ribbons, and photographs of their pageant-winning daughters. They were so meshed up in each other, and it was my gut instinct that told me something wasn't right there, said Stobie. They were going on and on about the size of Bert's penis. <laughs> this, to me, was so bizarre, and it is bizarre. Nedra is like a little bird, but both Pam and Polly were overweight. There was slim fast everywhere. Patsy, on the other hand, represented real success. We love spending the money John Ramsey makes, Nedra was fond of telling folks. And when Patsy gave birth in 1990 to a little girl with an angelic face, Nedra was rapturous. Stobie recalls that in 1993, when John Bonet was two, they were already talking about her in terms of being Miss America. The real tragedy is that this girl didn't even have a chance. For all her dreamy looks, John Benet, which is a combination of John and Bennett Ramsey's middle name, John Ramsey's middle name, was not an easy child. They would talk about how incorrigible she was, said Stobie. And at the same time, she's so cute, she's going to be Miss America thing. That wasn't discussed. Or what wasn't discussed was the fact that John Benet was a chronic bedwetter. Linda Hoffman Pugh, the Ramsey housekeeper, told police that the only housework Patsy Ramsey ever did was to change and wash John Benet's sheets every day before Hoffman and Pugh arrived for work. There was a plastic sheet covering the mattress, Hoffman and Pugh explained to me. A former nanny adds that John Benet wore pull-ups, diaper underwear during the day. In the three years before the child's death, Patsy took her to a pediatrician 30 times. That's a lot. While John Ramsey became increasingly focused on his company's skyrocketing growth, Patsy spent her energy on her daughter's career and on charities and shopping. She organized several of the programs at her children's school and offered to underwrite her softball league, Mom's Gone Bad, for its first two years. That was the name of it, Mom's Gone Bad. She developed the tight-knit circle of well-to-do mothers, including Priscilla White and Barbara Fernie. To the pageant moms, Patsy Ramsey, having been a Miss American contestant, was close to being royalty. One of her most impassioned defenders has been Pamela Griffin, who sewed many of John Benet's costumes and whose 19-year-old daughter, Christine, also a pageant winner, coached and babysat John Benet. Praising Patsy effusively, Griffin cites her generosity and kindness. 
She says she is baffled by the lawyer's decision to muzzle the Ramseys. I have told Patsy's mom over and over that I wish she would talk. People fall in love with Patsy just talking to her. She is a force to be reckoned with, just like her mother, who is the tiniest little fireball you've ever seen. You don't cross that woman. And Patsy is just like that in defense of her children. The whole notion that John Ramsey could be molesting the child and Patsy covering up for him is almost funny. LaDonna Grigio, another pageant mom whose daughter, Brienne, nine, passed on a Little Miss Colorado crown to John Benet last year. Can't speak highly enough of the Ramseys. Patsy is not your normal snobby rich person, she said. To gain some insight into the pageant world, I even went to the Little Miss Hawaiian Tropic pageant in Denver in June, held in one of the banquet rooms of the Red Lion Hotel. A small stage and runway, decorated in purple, turquoise, and green tinsel palm trees, took up almost half of the ballroom. About 50 moms, many of whom were seriously overweight, and a scattering of men watched his girls from infants to teenagers, several of whom who had competed against John Benet, paraded before the judges. In an adjoining banquet room, the girls changed from costume to costume for the various events, swimwear, formal wear, sportswear. Anxious mothers fussed over them, spraying their hair, lavishing up makeup onto their faces, and whispering tips of encouragement. Some of the women, incensed over the bad press pageants have been getting, sought to disabuse me of the lies you may have read. Others simply confirmed the criticism. John Bonet wanted to do it. She loved it, insisted Pam Powell. John Bonet would have done a pageant every day if Patsy had let her, but Patsy said no. Church comes first on Sunday, and the other days we'll do pageants or whatever. But wouldn't we, mother and aunt, former Miss America contestants, be doing less than we should if we didn't get her ready, get her dressed, and have her look her most exquisite? John Bonet's former nanny recalls otherwise. She would say to me, I don't want to walk down the runway. It scares me. She liked to perform, but didn't want to have to compete. The pageant videos of John Benet strutting seductively down runways, which were played ceaselessly on television, scandalized many viewers who were unaware that child pageants even existed. I remember when I saw this back then, I was surprised myself. I didn't realize that girls that young were involved in these pageants. It was pretty eye-opening. So anyways, John Bonet had been variously described as looking like a six-year-old Lolita, a pint-sized sex kitten, and a daddy's little hooker. That's pretty, pretty harsh. Her mock vamping has been called kitty porn. The Ramseys were flabbergasted at the outrage over John Bonet's pageant photos and videos. But again, I got to defend a little bit. If you see it for the first time, excuse me, you see the photos, you see the videos, and you can't kind of get that out of your mind a little bit, but you need more information. And the more that you get, you realize that obviously that's not what's going on here, but still I would say it's somewhat scandalous. So at the Ramsey's May 1st press conference, Patsy minimized her daughter's pageant life as just a few Sunday afternoons, but Marilyn Vanderbur Atler, a former Miss America who had gone public with her story of incest says that when I knew this woman was in serious denial, pageant life is full time. There are dance teachers, there are singing teachers and costume fittings, rehearsals, makeup, and hair. It's not a hobby. It's a career. John Benet began competing by age four. Pam Paw is indignant over the coverage of her niece. They said she went for French manicures once a week. That's a lie. 
The night before every pageant, and I was at every single one of them, we would do what we all call the pageant scrub, she says. And it was a fun time in the bathroom. Scrub up the knees, make sure the nails are clean, neat and trimmed. We washed her hair, and Aunt Pam would do the little French manicure. And that was that. Patsy and I did her hair. I'm a Chanel makeup artist, and that child wore so little makeup because she didn't need it. Powell concedes that John Bonet's hair was lightened, which Patsy also denied. She always denied that. The former nanny says John Bonet's hair was a little light golden brown, which suddenly turned platinum blonde. I said to her, So who's dyeing your hair, John Bonet? She was all goshed. You're not supposed to say anything about that. I said, Okay, it'll be our little secret. By the way, said Paul proudly, I designed most of her clothes, and they were professionally made, and they are very ladylike. John Bonet won top honors in her wardrobing every place we went. I worked with John Bonet on all her music as well. She had a lovely voice. Now, for Cowboy Sweetheart, she had a little routine that was taught to her by Miss Kit, who was also a dance instructor. Patsy designed the Cowboy Sweetheart outfit, and Pam Griffin made it. I designed the black and white Chanel sportswear outfit with a little polka dot underskirt. Gray Joe Griffin and the other mom, Tammy Polson, say that they never saw any signs that John Bonet was not enjoying herself. Others say they had glimpses of a strain on the child. One often told story took place at Pasta Jay's, a restaurant run by the Ramsey's close friend Jay Alowski. According to one version, it must have been some kind of dress-up affair or pageantry thing because John Bonet was all dressed up with makeup and a gown. She got cold and went up to her mother and said, Mommy, I'd like to wear my jacket on cold. And Patsy said firmly, Not now, honey. You're still on display. Very strange. But anyways, Mike Glenn, a former Divinity student, met Ramsey in 1991 when he was the recruiting coordinator for the University of Colorado's football team. He needed someone to donate computer equipment to the school. Jay Olowski introduced Glenn to Ramsey, and the two struck up a close relationship that Ramsey came through with the computers for him and in time offered Glenn, who speaks several languages, a position on the international side of his company. With daughters close in age, the Glens and the Ramseys often socialized. The family was almost make-believe, too perfect. It was like Ozzy and Harriet came to Boulder, said Glenn. But John could get real angry. I saw this on a few occasions involving business, shouting and threatening, his eyes bulging like you can't believe. It seemed like like a Jekyll and Hyde thing going on here. In 1992, the Ramseys were blindsided by a series of tragedies. On January 8th, Ramsey's eldest daughter, Elizabeth, was killed in an automobile accident. Ramsey was devastated. Jim Marino sees Elizabeth's death as the watershed event of Ramsey's life. There was a significant change when she died, he says. He became more introverted, and a few months later, Ramsey's father, who had married Strawn's first wife's mother, also died. In the summer of 1993, Patsy was diagnosed with metastasized ovarian cancer. It was stage four. That's pretty rough, guys. Um, it was clear up underneath the rib cage, says Pam Paw. Patsy began commuting to the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, for chemotherapy, and she took Taxol. I took John aside and said, you really need to do everything you can to help her, recalls Mike Glenn. He needed to be reminded, and he did take some time off and traveled with her. 
Judith Phillips was distressed to learn that her very ill friend was flying back and forth across country by herself, sick as a dog and vomiting. Where the hell was John? In 1995, the cancer went into remission. She was healed of God, claims Pam, because she had cancer one day and then not the very next day. Patsy's illness, according to one knowledgeable insider, was complicated by the fact that implants from a breast augmentation earlier in her marriage ruptured and needed additional surgery. Following her recovery, she celebrated by having a partial facelift. That's too typical. Anyways, on the morning of December 26th, Patsy Ramsey phoned her mother in Atlanta. Immediately, Pam, Polly, and Polly's husband flew to Boulder after the discovery of the body. Patsy declared to her friends that she would never go back to that house again. In the first days, the Ramseys and Powell sisters moved into John and Barbara Fernie's place in South Boulder. Another friend, Patsy Novak, who was a registered nurse, stayed nights with Patsy. Patsy was completely devastated, said Novak. She needed to be taken into the shower and assisted in the bathroom. While Patsy wept, John paced. The first night he was completely pacing, said Novak, and I had to wake up his brother Jeff because I needed him to keep an eye on John. That first night, Patsy slept on a futon, and John must have slept on a couch. They pretty much didn't sleep. On December 28th, with the lawyers present, the Ramseys gave hair and blood samples and were fingerprinted. She was a wreck, said one source. As she was being fingerprinted, she became hysterical, saying, why are you doing this? Do you think I killed my baby? In June, Patsy Ramsey, who was heavily medicated after her daughter's death, told friends that she could not remember anything, not the murder night, the days after, nothing. Investigators began to worry about amnesia defense that she would put up in defense, obviously. Others recalled her emotionally charged remark during the Ramsey's May 1st press conference that it won't be long before she sees John Bonet again. <clears throat> Excuse me. On December 29th, the family flew to Marietta, Georgia in a private jet piloted by John Ramsey for John Bonet's funeral. Among those who were there to comfort the Ramseys that first week were Fleet and Priscilla White. Soon, however, questions and doubts began to nag at the Whites. Fleet White phoned the Powell House and said he wanted to come by and speak with John. When the Whites arrived, they were led into the sunroom where Ramsey, his brother Jeff, and Don Powell were waiting. According to an insider, Ramsey sat down next to Priscilla and began to pat her arm as if to calm her down as her husband pelted him with questions. Why do you need all these attorneys? Why aren't you cooperating with the police? His distress was mounting, he declared. I don't understand what you're doing. Priscilla later told friends that she had told John that going on CNN was a huge mistake. Nedger would later tell police that White was a wild man and a lunatic. Ramsey would inform friends that the worm had turned. And according to a DA source, Ramsey told his lawyers and the DA that he regretted Fleet White, whom he had often identified as his best friend, as a prime suspect in John Bonet's murder. In the ensuing weeks, the Ramsey team spread the word that the Whites were not to be trusted. Pam Griffin was among those who carried the message. This man has a dark side, she told me over the phone. Pressed to explain how Fleet White could have possibly killed John Benet, she said, I don't think Fleet White, with his two hands, murdered that child. I just think he knows something. The Whites declined to comfort for the story. Or, I'm sorry, to declined to comment for the story. The Whites were the first of what the police have come to call the throwaway friends. Anyone suspected of that vaguest disloyalty to the Ramseys soon showed up on the list that they gave police. 
Ramsey panicked and started throwing all his friends under the bus, says radio host Peter Boyles. Beginning with his best friend, Jeff Merrick, Mike Glenn, and Jim Marino were all horrified to learn that Ramsey had placed them on the suspect list. All of them were questioned by detectives and asked to give blood and or hair samples. Later, they learned that Haddon's team had identified them to police as, quote, disgruntled former employees. Access employees were told that anyone who spoke with the press or the police without permission would be fired. One of the detectives, Steve Thomas, told me to come in and ask me point blank if I killed her, says Merrick, still fuming. I have no doubt that Ramsey tried to set me up. The specific questions that the police kept asking me was, why does John Ramsey keep throwing your name out? They asked me to take a polygraph, and I said, sure, no problem, as soon as John Ramsey takes one. Early in 1996, Ramsey had decided that he wanted to get rid of Merrick. Merrick was shifted to another job, which was soon eliminated. When Merrick confronted Ramsey, his friend of 25 years, told him that he was powerless to help him. Merrick filed the complaint with Lockheed Martin, which later prompted the Ramsey team to put him on their suspect list. Jane Stobie was not surprised that Ramsey had gone from defending himself to accusing his friends. She was familiar with that strategy. I knew those people were bad, bad news. We called it the evil empire for a reason. Marino and Glenn had much softer landings. They were moved around the company to positions that either overtaxed them or made them unhappy enough to quit. Both of them, as well as Merrick, went on to better and higher paid jobs. Glenn and Marino left on fairly good terms. Both immediately phoned Ramsey after the murder to offer their condolences. He was my best friend for a lot of those years, said Marino with difficulty. That's what hurt me the most. He indicated that Mike and Jeff were his enemies. And I can tell you they were there for him. I was contacted by the Boulder police about two weeks later, wanting to talk to me about where I was on the night of the murder, said Glenn, who now lives in Tucson. They said my name had been mentioned by Ramsey's attorney as someone they needed to check out. I was pretty dumbfounded. In February and March, Glenn says his family was tormented by three weeks of constant media bombardment. His neighbors were interviewed by TV crews. One even asked, according to Glenn, do you know the Ramsey family considers him to be a major suspect in the murder of their daughter? In April, after two visits, visits from a private investigator named John Foster, who said he worked for the Ramseys, Glenn called the Boulder detective to find out why the PI was snooping around. He learned that virtually everyone the police had interviewed got a visit soon after by one of Ramsey's personal sleuths. I said, why are they doing that? And the police said, to obscure the truth. Foster must have told me six times that John didn't give my name to the police. However, detectives told Glenn that Ramsey had given his name almost immediately. Foster explained that the Ramseys had formed a team to try and solve this murder. You know, the police are a small town operation there. They don't know what they're doing, but they're not willing to take any kind of help either. Foster continued to pester Glenn, trying to learn what he had told the police. After 40 minutes, Glenn told him to leave. Foster declined to comment for this story, just for transparency's sake. Judith Phillips, who last saw Patsy in March, says, I was still a true blue supporter of her. According to Phillips, Patsy asked her to contact Leslie Durgin, Boulder's mayor, and a pal of Phillips. Durgin, who describes Patsy as barely an acquaintance, was surprised at the message Phillips conveyed from her. Why aren't you protecting me? Durgin tersely replied via Phillips. We are doing everything we can. I am supporting the police. 
Weeks later, Philip says she learned that she too had flunked the loyalty test. In April, one of Patsy's close friends phoned her to say that the Ramseys never wanted to see me again. I was not their friend. Obviously, there's a pattern here, folks, right? Every Barbara Fernie, according to friends, began to have doubts. For months, she and Patsy had been inseparable, shopping, lunching, chatting on the phone. By early spring, Fernie began telling people, I am the one doing the grieving here. Something is wrong with Patsy. Soon, friends would say Barbara was dropped from the Ramsey inner circle, though her husband, John, has continued his relationship with Ramsey, as have many other business associates. One by one, many of the Ramseys bold their friends quietly slipped away. However, as more and more of these friends lost faith in them, the DA's team seemed to work more and more closely with the Haddon team. They openly began to give credence to the intruder theory prompted in Haddon's office. Detectives would sit numbly as Hofstrom dismissed their carefully collected evidence, and Lou Smith offered the theory that a grown man had sneaked in through the broken window so narrow that even Hunter discounted the possibility. No one came through that window, he told me in June. But by July, the Haddon team had convinced Hofstrom, DeMuth, and Smith that it was possible. I have talked to Alex a great deal, Pamela Griffin told me, and he has some people working on the case who have called me and they do not think the Ramseys did it. Pam Paul told me in June, the fact that the district attorney is working with Patsy and John's team is enough to tell the world that they are off the hook. If I thought you did it, and I was the police or the DA, would I be working on a daily basis with you and your hired lawyers and investigators telling you what I know and then telling me what they know so I could turn around and arrest you? No, because I could never convict you that way. On July 11th, Hostrom told Tom Wickman, that he had arranged a meeting with the Ramseys and their attorneys for the next day. The purpose of this meeting was to support the Ramseys' claim of innocence and to seek their assistance in finding the killer. No one from the police was invited. A request to tape the meeting for the benefit of the police was denied as well. The following morning at 7 a.m., John and Patsy Ramsey convened with a four of their lawyers, Burke, Morgan, Foreman, and Haddon, Lou Smith and Hostrom were there asking Patsy and John their thoughts on the intruder version, says an investigator. It was a joke. The next day, Ramsey went to church with John Fernie while Patsy flew to Atlanta. In mid-July, Nedra and Pam Paw helped Patsy move into the new $700,000 brick colonial in the Vining suburb of Atlanta, just across the road from the prestigious Lovett School, where Burke is said to be enrolled. On July 15th, Ramsey announced that his company, the new international headquarters, would be in Atlanta starting on August 1st. The detectives, however, embittered and demoralized, I'm sorry, embittered and demoralized, did not give up. They decided to keep their contact with the Hunters team to a minimum and their thoughts and evidence to themselves. Open bickering erupted between the two teams. Smith was reportedly accused of contaminating the case file by putting in reports that exonerated the Ramseys. I'll write the reports as I see them, Smith allegedly shot back. Some of the police turned to the therapist, some to clergy, others to lawyers. And in late July, one high-powered attorney assured them, if the right thing isn't done, we'll do the right thing. A week later, Tom Wickman was told that three experts, Robert Miller, a former U.S. attorney, Daniel Hoffman, a former dean of the University of Denver Law School, and Richard Baer, a former New York prosecutor wanted to talk to him. At a hastily arranged meeting with the chief Kobe and Wickman and his team, these 
Eminences, according to one insider, reviewed the evidence, voiced enthusiastic support for the beleaguered cops, and offered pro bono assistance. A hushed jubilation filled the room until Kobe announced that he would have to tell Hunter about the meeting. The volunteer experts have declined to comment for this as well, for transparency's sake. Again, Hunter, according to the same source, was not pleased to learn that a handful of cops had ambushed him, but he was clearly impressed by the quality of their advisors. Days later, he welcomed the new additions to his team, but he made clear that he alone would make the decision to file charges. It had been a bad week for Hunter. On July 25th, Boulder police held a press conference and it announced that they had the evidence to go forward in the prosecution of a 14-year-old murder case. In 1983, Robert Redford's daughter boyfriend, Sid Wells, was killed. The police thought they had a solid case, but Hunter's office refused to prosecute the alleged killer. Now with the Ramsey case hanging over them, Hunter was being ambushed again. In addition, he was confronted by another cold case, the murder of Alec Albright, who police suspected was killed by his babysitter three years ago. The parents had been devastated when the DA's office declined to file charges. Hunter's spokesperson said that under Colorado law, any citizen can challenge the decision of the DA in a particular case by filing with a court for a motion to compel prosecution, and neither of these cases was such a motion filed. Other old cases, mainly in narcotics, were also suddenly being resurrected by the police. The Boulder cops, taking a page from the Haddon legal team, had started playing hardball. On July 23rd, the Ramsey team went on the offensive, blasting the investigators for wasting their time on the Ramseys instead of focusing on the real killer. They realized that their profile of the suspected killer and asked the public's cooperation in turning up someone who, for example, may have started drinking more recently or someone who had been going to church more since the murder. Most law enforcement experts dismissed the profile as a desperate attempt to deflect attention. Some compared it to the O.J. Simpson 800 number. On July 28th, Ramsey's, it is a very simple profile. It doesn't really make any sense here. It's just my own opinion. But on July 28th, Ramsey's profiler, John Douglas, a former FBI agent who took the job that Greg McCrary had turned down, went on NBC's Today and announced his disbelief that the case may be one of the 35% that will be and remain unsolved. The Ramsey machine stepped up to his campaign in late July and August, taking out a full-page ads about the intruder's profile in a local paper, circulating flyers, releasing sample letters from the ransom notes, and sending up its own tip line phone number. On August 3rd, the Ramseys ran another full-page intruder profile in Boulder's Daily Camera, but in the same edition was a full-page open letter to the Ramseys from Peter Boyles. The popular talk radio host listed all the reasons Americans found the Ramseys' behavior suspicious, and it is very suspicious. He mocked their profile as laughable, condemned them for not cooperating with the police, and accused them of taking Colorado and the nation on a seven-month, low-speed white Bronco chase. Real grieving parents, he said, behaved like Fred Goldman, not like the Ramseys. In late July, Hunter agreed to go with Hostrom to the FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia, to meet with the child abduction and serial killer unit in early September. For months, said a source, the police had implored Hofstrom to listen to the conclusions of the FBI to no avail. They're going to take DeMuth, Hofstrom, and Smith out of their little kingdom where they're so comfortable, 
take them to Quantico and let those guys beat them over the head for two days and say, look, this is how you prosecute this case. The lack of the indictment after eight months has fueled an incendiary rumor mill, which attributes to the stalemate to everything, conspiracy theories, to bribes, to promises of political and judicial appointments. Some observers discount any sinister motivation here and simply state that the playing field was never even. Columnist Chuck Green speculates, I'm sure Haddon has told Hunter that if you file against my clients, I'll come after you for malicious prosecution. One elected official in Boulder explains, this is a small, incestuous legal community. We've never built firewalls, and this case really needed one at the very beginning, owing to the early police incompetence, the misdirections of the district attorney's office, and a sketchy coroner's report. And many experts questions also whether any prosecution of the case stands a chance. Whether we prosecute or not, Hunter told me in June, there is no statute of limitations on murder. It's a very big sort of Democles hanging over their heads. So that's going to end it for part four. And I know this is very convoluted. There's there's so many people involved here that I'm going to um, just do an additional short rundown of the of the main people and um, who, who pro- were probably involved in this case because there's also a lot of rumors about the brother that just seem to make a lot of sense if you look at it. And again, they're all allegations. Nothing is true until, you know, everybody's assumed innocent until proven guilty. But there's a lot of incredibly interesting facts that came out about that that's not really spoken of here in this report. So we will do that and it'll be very, very short. Uh, I picked this because I think it's a very, very big case. A lot of people don't know of that are, you know, a bit younger, which was, you know, almost as big as the OJ case, if not on same par. And this poor little girl, it's just so strange that the amount of money, the $118,000 was just happened to be the same amount of money that John Ramsey had needed. I remember there was something about that and about the funds that the uh, note had asked for as far as a uh, ransom note. And then for them to have searched that entire house, destroying the, the, the crime scene, of course, in the meantime, I'm sure everybody is saying that too. When everybody was rushing around that house, <clears throat> John Ramsey goes down to the basement and finds her there and then picks her up and brings her upstairs. Again, the crime scene's ruined. So there's something to be said for that. So anyways, um, you know, hit the five stars for us, guys. Again, it's just about the algorithms and about helping to get us found on iTunes. Um, you know, we'll be going on to other cases uh, I've got something really, really cool for you guys coming up here soon that I just I absolutely know everybody's going to truly enjoy it. it. It's from a different perspective from somebody I know that has uh, gone to prison and to get his perspective on different issues. It has to do with with uh, domestic violence, which is just too much of in this day and age. And we need to learn from it and to learn you know, what the consequences are of this. So... That's about it, guys, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you.